Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 37 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So as we release this podcast, it is Good Friday, and this Sunday is Easter Sunday, which is the celebration of Jesus's resurrection. It's a holiday. It is a holy day, (laughs) to find the original meaning of that word, and it is meaningful to billions of people around the world. But is believing in Jesus's resurrection just a matter of faith, or can we point to evidence that it really did happen? And that's what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, before we begin, let's start with something that's related, but it may not seem so right at first, but it's related. You're a professional apologist. What does that mean? So an apologist is a person who defends a position. In Greek, uh, apologia means a defense. It's it, If you break it down into its roots, it's like a speech from a position. And it came to mean a defense. So apologetics is the study of how to defend something. And I'm a Christian apologist, so I defend the Christian faith. I'm also a Catholic apologist, so I defend the Catholic faith in particular. In English, the word apology came to have a meaning of like saying you're sorry or expressing regret, but that's not what it means in this context. Originally, it just meant a defense. So for example, Plato's dialogue known as the apology is Socrates' defense of himself before a court in Athens. And from from Greek, it passed on into other languages. And it, it has some unfortunate connotations in contemporary English. But basically, an apologist is a person who defends something. I defend the Christian and Catholic faith, and I do that professionally. Given that understanding of apologetics and what it means to be an apologist, what significance does the resurrection have in apologetics? It has a, a a lot of significance. It's the best documented miracle other than the cre- other than creation, and so it shows, among other things, that miracles are possible. It shows that miracles are possible even after creation. So there's a view known as deism that would say, well, God kind of set up the universe, but then He doesn't interact with it. Well, if the resurrection happened, it shows He does interact with it, and it's so significant that there's a school of apologetics known as evidential apologetics that argues directly from the resurrection to Christianity must be true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity must be true. You don't even, according to evidential apologists, need to argue the existence of God first, because according to them, if Christ rose from the dead, that proves the Christian faith, including its claims that um, that God exists. Other apologists like classical apologists would say, well, you maybe you want to prove God's existence first to show as part of your argument that miracles are possible. But one way or another, it's extremely significant. Uh, the resurrection is an extremely significant piece of evidence for apologetics and for showing the truth of the Christian faith. 
Obviously, we won't be doing a full course on apologetics in this episode. That'd be way beyond the, the scope of yeah. time we have. So what are the parameters we'll be working within uh, in this episode? Well, we're going to be focusing on the resurrection itself, and that means that we're not going to be focusing on some side claims that people sometimes make about Easter, like it's based on a pagan holiday, and spoiler warning, it's not. <laughs> but uh, we won't really be going into that in this episode. Also, we're going to start with certain premises that are widely accepted in the scholarly community, even among skeptical scholars. These are not doubted. Uh, those premises include the fact that Jesus was a real historical figure. Uh, so he wasn't just a myth. There are some kind of fringe thinkers who will say, oh, maybe he was just a myth. We'll talk about that in a future episode. But here we're starting with the premise that all serious scholars accept that, no, Jesus was a real historical person. He lived in the first half of the first century AD, and he died at some point. Um, we'll also be starting with certain premises that are also universally acknowledged uh, in the scholarly community about what the early Christians claimed. So according to the early Christians, uh, Christ the way Jesus died was he was crucified, and as a result of that, he died, he was buried. Later, they found his tomb empty. Later, they saw him alive again, and then he ascended into heaven. And so these claims are documented, for example, in the Gospels, as well as other works of early Christian literature. And we'll be talking about details that are mentioned in the Gospels. One thing I want to call attention to in particular is the fact that the early Christians didn't just claim that Jesus had been resurrected. And notice that nobody witnessed the resurrection. So this is not something anybody claimed to see. They did see Jesus die and get buried. And then they found the tomb empty and he appeared to them and said, I've been I've been raised from the dead. But nobody actually saw that. So that's an inference based on other pieces of evidence. Um, but they didn't just claim that he had been resurrected. They also claimed that he ascended into heaven. And that's important for a number of reasons. One reason is it explains why nobody, nobody in their day could just go to Jerusalem and see Jesus and say, hey, let me look at the wounds or something like that. This, this, was, this was an important early thing in the church, and I have not seen other apologists use the fact that they reported the ascension of Christ the way I'm going to use it in our discussion. I think that its full significance for the resurrection of Jesus has been missed in the apologetics community. So I'm going to be bringing out a new aspect that I haven't seen other apologists talk about. And what will we, will we be assuming? What assumptions will we make about miracles in our discussion? We are not going to assume anything in terms of do they happen or are they impossible? We're going to have an open mind here. Uh, we're not going to automatically exclude them, but we're not going to automatically assume that every miracle report must be true either. We're going to see where the evidence takes us. So let's get into the theories then, and then we'll we'll address the uh, reason and faith perspectives after that. The theories, what ex explanations are offered for the early Christians' claims about Jesus' resurrection? Basically, they fall into two categories. There are natural explanations for what happened that led the early Christians to claim Jesus had been raised, as well as that they saw him and that 
he, he ascended into heaven and so forth. And then there are supernatural explanations. Under the natural explanations, they also kind of fall into two classes. And the first class you don't hear discussed very much in apologetics literature, but we're going to talk about it here because of the nature of this show. The first kind of subclass of natural explanations will explain the early Christian claims based on advanced technology. So maybe the reason that Jesus rose from the dead is aliens came and you know, restarted his heart and patched him up. And maybe they they used a, a jet pack to fly him up into heaven at the ascension. Or if it wasn't aliens, maybe it was people from another dimension. Or if it wasn't people from another dimension, maybe it was time travelers. Or either they brought time travel technology, they time travelers brought technology into the tomb and restarted Jesus's heart. Or maybe they just jumped Jesus ahead a little bit so that if he's from some earlier point in his life before the crucifixion, and that's how he appeared later on. So, you know, you sometimes encounter people who will propose ideas like this, but they're not taken seriously in apologetic literature for reasons we'll get into. But because of the nature of Mysterious World, where we do talk about aliens and time travel and other dimensions, it's appropriate for us to consider these sort of advanced technology solutions here. And then uh, the, uh, there are natural explanations that are apart from the advanced technology ones. Right. Ones that don't require any kind of advanced technology. And these are the ones that you commonly hear read about in apologetic literature. Ideas like, well, maybe they found the the disciples found the tomb empty just because they went to the wrong tomb. Or maybe they saw Jesus alive afterwards because they were tricked into thinking he died and he didn't really die. Maybe someone gave him a drug while he was on the cross and it made him go unconscious and they thought he died, but then he revived in the tomb. Or if it wasn't a drug, maybe Jesus just passed out on the cross. Maybe he swooned and then later revived in the tomb. Or if he did die, maybe he had a twin and it was the twin that they saw after they found his tomb empty. Or if it wasn't a twin, maybe it was someone else who impersonated Jesus. Or maybe they all hallucinated and thought they saw Jesus when really they didn't. Or maybe the disciples were were religious crooks and they stole his body out of the tomb and then lied about seeing him afterwards. Or maybe it's some combination of these other natural explanations. So those are the natural explanations. And then there are supernatural theories or explanations that are advanced. Right. Uh, One of these is the idea that the resurrection was a purely spiritual event that didn't really involve Jesus's body. This is something that you sometimes... um, We'll hear from more liberal Christians as a way of explaining the disciples' experience of Jesus, but but they they don't feel comfortable saying, well, and his body was no longer in the tomb. So maybe he was spiritually raised and they saw him spiritually in kind of a vision or something. Uh, and they would be prepared to say, well, OK, that's a that's a supernatural thing. It's a legitimate vision, not just a hallucination, but it didn't really involve his body. The other is the classical understanding. The other supernatural explanation is the classical understanding. Nope, he was resurrected bodily. Some listeners may, be wondering, may wonder as we go through this, 
why we're going to look at these different theories under the reason rather than the faith perspective. Yeah, the the basic purpose behind that is because we're going to be looking at evidence. We're going to be saying what does uh, using the principle of reason, using the gift of reason rather than the gift of faith, what does the evidence suggest about these different proposed alternatives? So it is legitimate, even though we're talking about something that will ultimately transition into a consideration of of what are the implications for the faith. Really, apologetically here, we're saying, what does reason tell us about this set of claims? What's the overall argument then for, for the resurrection from a reason perspective? So for the resurrection. Well, one of the things that experience teaches us about miracles is if miracles occur, they can't easily be predicted in advance, you, at least unless you have a prophet or someone who can tell you a miracle is going to happen. You, you don't have a way of predicting them in advance because they don't, uh, as miracles, they don't occur in a regular way, the way other phenomena like sun and rain and wind do. And so there's no way to study them uh, and determine, make a prediction based on observation of when a miracle is likely to happen, like you can predict when the sunrise is going to happen. By definition, they don't follow the laws of nature. Exactly. And so because of that, we have to, instead of trying to predict miracles before they happen, we have to look at the evidence after they've happened and say, okay, what other explanations could there be besides a miracle? And if the other explanations have problems with them, then that increases the probability that a miracle happens. So it's basically the Sherlock Holmes principle. Once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however antecedently improbable it might seem, must be the truth. So if you have a bunch of explanations that are natural and you eliminate all the natural explanations, that gives you confidence that there must be a supernatural explanation here. So there must be a miracle. So let's get into these theories, these explanations that have been offered. Uh, yeah. Let's start with the ones uh, that, that that seem to, to me the most interesting ones uh, are the advanced technology solutions. So what can you say about those? Well, in, in each for each of these explanations, we're going to look at its explanatory power, because what we're considering are the claims that were made by the early Christians about Jesus and what happened to him. How much does an individual explanation how much would a proposed solution explain? And then we'll look at the evidence for or against that explanation. So in the case of the advanced technology solutions, they have a lot of explanatory power. Uh, if, if they would explain the empty tomb, if somehow Jesus you know, was, was raised by advanced technology, uh, they would explain then why he was able to later appear to the disciples because he he was he was resuscitated and then they would ex even potentially explain the ascension because maybe he had a jetpack or a gravity beam pulled him up or who knows what and so there's a lot of explanatory power to these but what's the evidence for them there are problems depending well one for example is are some of the claims even possible like time travel or interdimensional travel we don't even know if that kind of stuff is possible. And um, so you have to discount these some of the solutions. Now, you could say maybe extraterrestrials did it um, because it, we do have good evidence. You could go from one planet to another, but even that's really hard. So even if you say um, 
even if you say, well, this advanced technology is possible, was it available? How likely is it that aliens came down at this one moment and did this? I mean, it's one thing to say they did it, but what evidence do you have? And how plausible is that? Ultimately, and I think this is going to be the real problem, uh, ultimately, in my view, the person who accomplishes something is the one who's qualified to tell you how he did it. And Jesus did not say it was aliens or time travelers or something like that. He didn't explain this after the fact as a product of advanced technology. He said that um, this is something God did, and he explained it as a miracle. And so as a result of that, while you could propose one of these advanced tech solutions, you it doesn't fit the actual evidence. The evidence we have is, according to Jesus, this was a supernatural thing. It was not natural. And so if you're going to follow the evidence, it doesn't point towards the advanced technology solutions. I think especially given that he had predicted this. I mean, he had advanced knowledge of right. of resurrection, that sort of thing. So okay. Right. Jesus had a, a supernatural worldview involving prophecy and miracles. He did not have an advanced technology worldview that he was preaching to people. How plausible is the hypothesis uh, that they had the wrong tomb? Well, the wrong tomb hypothesis has limited explanatory power. It will explain why they thought the tomb was empty, but that's about it. It's also very implausible because there is a chain of custody for the tomb. According to the Gospels, the tomb was at the site of the crucifixion. So it was right there. They'd all been there. They, they were at the crucifixion. They saw where he was buried. The Gospels make a point, and each one of the four Gospels does this, of talking about which women witnessed the crucifixion and then witnessed the tomb, the burial, and then witnessed the tomb being empty. So in each case, they establish a chain of custody of these women saw the crucifixion, they saw the burial, and then they saw the empty tomb. So it's the same women in each case. Also, according to the Gospels, the tomb was owned by an early follower of Jesus who uh, was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, named Joseph of Arimathea. So how likely is it Joseph of Arimathea is going to go to the wrong tomb when he hears that Jesus's body is no longer in his own tomb where he himself and Nicodemus buried it? Also, there were guards over the tomb, according to Matthew. So which, how would you go to the wrong tomb if it's clearly marked by the guards? Then, once Christians start claiming the tomb is empty, if they had just gone to the wrong tomb, why wouldn't the authorities go to the <laughs> right one and produce the body? Right. You know, it, it, that makes no sense. Um, it also doesn't explain, the wrong tomb hypothesis does not explain why they concluded Jesus was resurrected, because it's not what they were expecting, As and this will play a role later on too. Jews expected the resurrection of the dead to occur at the end of the world for everybody, not for one guy prior to the end of the world. So they weren't expecting a resurrection. And in fact, in the Gospels, they don't leap to the conclusion that Jesus was resurrected. They actually, the first hypothesis, both of the women and of the disciples, 
is that somebody's moved the body. That's their first thought. So when they find the tomb empty, they don't leap to the interpretation of he's been resurrected. And then if they just went to the wrong tomb, it wouldn't explain either the later resurrection appearances where Jesus shows up and talks to them, and it wouldn't explain the reports of the ascension. So it, it can explain the, the empty tomb, but that's it. And it's already implausible because of the chain of custody and the authorities would have gone to the tomb and produced the real body. So the next uh, hypothesis is that the disciples were tricked. How plausible is that? Well, it would explain the empty tomb and it would explain the later resurrection appearances if somebody had drugged Jesus. Now, there are going to be questions immediately, well, who did this? And some people have pointed to the fact that the Gospels report there being two men who were at the tomb. The way they're presented, they're normally understood as angels, that there are these two angels at the tomb. But some people have said, well, maybe they, were, they weren't angels. Maybe they were human confederates of Jesus who had drugged him on the cross. Okay, so maybe, but what's the evidence for this? There's an initial implausibility regarding the state of first century anesthesia. Today, anesthesia is a highly refined science, but it was not in the first century. And the probability of taking someone who had been highly traumatized like Jesus, I mean, he had been beaten a bunch of different ways. His body had been subject already to numerous injuries to the point he couldn't even carry his own cross. So they had to impress a guy who was coming in from the countryside to carry it for him because Jesus was already too traumatized. How likely is it that you're going to be able to successfully anesthetize someone on the cross without killing him? Right. There's already a problem there. There's a bigger problem because the Romans verified Jesus's death when he died unexpectedly quickly. They then shoved a spear into his side. And according to the Gospels, what looked like blood and water flowed out. Now, modern doctors have have looked at that and said, OK, the water it may have looked like water. It was some kind of clear fluid. What it probably was, was uh, internal fluid that that had gathered either in his pleural cavity, where his lungs were located, or in a sac that's around the heart, known as the pericardial sac. And the, the spear then pierced it and let this fluid out. And that wound alone would have been fatal. So the, the separation of the, of the clear fluid from the blood is itself a sign of death. And then even if, it ha even if he hadn't been dead, the spear wound alone would have killed him. Then we have the question of, well, who are these conspirators? Uh, they would have had to, it would seem, if Jesus is trusting them to drug him like this, they would have had to be close associates of his, and yet they weren't among the apostles, and they weren't recognized by the women as fellow Christians. That doesn't make sense. And then how did they get past the guard to let Jesus out of the tomb? Why would they take such a risk? What's what's it? Why would they even bother trying to fake a, a resurrection when nobody expected a resurrection because everybody knew it was going to happen at the end of the world? <clears throat> the, uh, the there are just lots of implausibilities here. It, it doesn't make sense that you'd try to do this kind of thing. And then there's the fact that even if you grant everything up to now and say it was the, the result of a trick. How do you explain the ascension? The disciples claim to see Jesus ascend into heaven. 
nobody without advanced tech or a miracle was capable of doing that. So just a few guys with a drug that could make Jesus pass out are not going to enable and they're not going to have a drug that's going to enable him to fly. The, on top of that is the that question of how would they know that he was Jesus was going to be arrested at this time and go through the trials and and eventually crucifixion that he was so that they could plan this uh, drugging on the cross. I mean, that would that seems highly improbable that they'd be able to plan such an intricate caper on the fly. There is something to be said for that. Although you can look at the pattern of evidence in the Gospels and say Jesus provoked his own execution. Uh, he knew he was going to go to the cross and he went to the temple and cleared it out, knowing the response that was going to have from the Jewish authorities. What he couldn't have known naturally is that he would be crucified as opposed to just killed by the sword. Um, so there is something there, but this is, this would have been partially naturally foreseeable because Jesus had determined he was going to go to he was going to go to his death and then undertook actions knowing what the response of the authorities would be. Yeah, uh, uh, taking that would be taking the con to an extreme to be allow yourself to be crucified. Really <laughs> risky, yeah. yeah. Yes. And why would you want to do this in, anyway? <laughs> right, there, there are easier ways to con people. <laughs> yeah. That brings us to the next one, which is that Jesus just passed out on the cross and then later revived. How plausible is this? Well, the swoon hypothesis will explain the empty tomb because he revived and got out of it somehow. And then it would explain the later appearances where he shows himself to the disciples. But there are problems with it. Um, for one thing, the Gospels report he cried out uh, right before his death, suggesting a sudden painful event like a cardiac event was responsible for his death. And so that's actually been one of the things modern doctors have proposed looking at the evidence of the Gospels. It looks like he died of a cardiac event after severe trauma. Um, then there's the fact the Romans verified his death. Again, the spear wound would have killed him if he had just passed out. And the the separation of the blood in clear fluid, again, is taken as another sign of death. Then there's how could he have gotten out of the tomb if he was someone who was severely weakened by all of this? How would he have been strong enough to lift the rock to roll it out of the way? And how would he have gotten past the guard? And even if he had been strong enough to do all that, he probably couldn't flap his arms hard enough to fly at the ascension. <laughs> so the swoon hypothesis doesn't explain everything we need to explain here. All right. Then how plausible is the hypothesis that Jesus had a twin brother? Well, this hypothesis will explain the later appearances, but that's really all it's going to explain, as we will see. In terms of evidence that people cite for this, uh, they will point to the to the fact that Jesus had a disciple named Thomas, or in Greek, Didymus. In Aramaic, Thomas means twin, and in Greek, Didymus means twin. And so you will find some sources of a much later date that will even say things like Thomas was Jesus's twin. But these are way late sources that don't have historical value. Scholars do not take them so seriously as historical sources because they're a much later date. It's true that Thomas almost certainly was a twin. 
Uh, but his twin apparently was not one of Jesus's followers. Otherwise, he would have been introduced the way Simon and Peter or James and John are introduced as brothers of uh, each Peter, other. Peter and Andrew, you mean? Uh, Peter and Andrew, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter and Andrew or James and John are introduced as brothers of each other. We also have brothers of Jesus, quote unquote brothers, introduced in the Gospels. And we know their names and none of them are named Thomas. So if Jesus's own twin brother had been among his disciples, it would have been noted because we have family relationships noted for Jesus and for other disciples. If his own twin brother was a disciple, that would have been something they called attention to. Right. So how likely if if Thomas is not his twin, how likely is it he could have had some other twin. Well, identical twinning occurs in humans in three out of every thousand births. So the odds are more than 300 to one that Jesus had no twin, or had no identical twin. Um, there's no mention of him having a twin in the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. And it would have been highly noteworthy if he had a twin, you would expect Matthew and Luke to mention he had a twin because they're recording what they believe to be the birth of the son of God. And if two come out, <laughs> it's going to immediately raise questions of, of a theological nature about who is the son of God here? Are there two sons of God? You know, exactly what's the relation? Which twin takes priority over the other? Which is, in fact, a theme that's common in the Old Testament, where you have twins like Jacob and Esau or um, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain and Abel. Well, they're not twins. Oh, but, right, right. Brothers. Uh, yeah. But you also have um, in the patri age of the patriarchs, you have this repeated pattern of brothers being born, sometimes twins, with the younger ending up taking priority over the older. Right. And so if Jesus had had a twin, it would have immediately raised all kinds of questions that would have had to have been dealt with in the infancy narratives. Also, if he had a twin, this would have been known. We would expect the apostles to know about the twin. Now, one thing that's interesting, just to go back to Thomas for a second, if uh, it, it's interesting that, so if Thomas had been Jesus's twin, he would have been Jesus's brother. But John expressly says that Jesus's brothers did not believe in him during his ministry. They didn't think he was the Messiah. And yet Thomas did. So that's another piece of evidence that Thomas was not a brother and therefore not a twin. Also, because the disciples would have known about the twin, they would have immediately questioned who was crucified and who they were seeing. They would not have, if, if they're told, okay, hi, I'm Jesus, I'm back from the dead, they would have wondered, well, wait a minute, then who was crucified? Was it your twin? Right. Or if Jesus was crucified, are you the twin? Yeah, someone would naturally say, would not leap immediately to, you've been resurrected. They would have leapt to the, well, if Jesus was just crucified, we just saw that, you must yeah. be the twin. This would be it, the natural explanation. That would be the natural explanation. Also, and again, just to go back to Thomas for a second, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus appeared to Thomas after his resurrection. So if one twin is in the tomb because he was crucified, how is Jesus appearing to Thomas and inviting him to touch his wounds? 
That doesn't make any sense. Also, uh, this you'll notice it explains the it could explain the resurrection appearances, but it doesn't explain the empty tomb because there'd still be a twin in that tomb. And it doesn't explain the ascension because most twins cannot fly. (laughs) So the twin hypothesis doesn't do the work we need it to do. So then if so, the twin is off the table there. How plausible is the hypothesis that someone impersonated Jesus? Again, in terms of explanatory power, this will explain the later appearances if someone impersonated Jesus. In terms of the evidence for it, it's pointed out sometimes that in Matthew's gospel, it says that even after the resurrection, some of the disciples doubted. But it's not clear based on what Matthew meant by by his statement that they doubted. It's not that they're necessarily at all that they're doubting this is Jesus. They may, and this is mentioned in Luke's gospel, they may think he's a ghost and that they're seeing a ghost. And so they're doubting, is this a bodily experience or a vision of some kind that I'm seeing? Also, it could just be an expression of amazement. Like in English, we'll say, I can't believe it. And we don't mean we literally don't believe it. We just mean we're amazed. And so when when Matthew says that they doubted, he may just mean they were amazed. Um, then some people will point out that on a few occasions, there were some in, there was some initial difficulty in people recognizing Jesus. So maybe that's a sign that it was an imposter. It wasn't someone who looked identically like him. Except when you look at the details of those accounts, it doesn't support it. Uh, one of the occasions is in John's gospel where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and at first she thinks he's like the caretaker of the garden where the tomb is. But it's clear she's she's weeping on that occasion, and she's not looking at him, because when he speaks her name, she recognizes his voice, and John notes she turned to look at him. So she initially was not looking at him when she thought this guy she's seen out of the corner of her eye is the caretaker. Um, it's not, that's not evidence of an imposter because as soon as she hears his voice, she recognizes and looks at him. Then later in John's gospel, they, the disciples are fishing on the sea of Galilee and Jesus is on the shore and he calls to them. And at first they don't recognize him, but he's off in the distance. And then when they row the boat up to shore and get out of it, John notes that none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? John says they knew it was the Lord, so they recognized him when they got up close. Then there is the one event that Luke records where Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says their eyes were kept from recognizing him until a key moment when they're eating dinner with him, and suddenly their eyes are opened and they recognize him. This has sometimes been understood in terms of Jesus appearing in a different form, like shape-shifting a little bit. Um, or it could also, and I find this an intriguing hypothesis. I can't prove it, but I find it intriguing that this was a case of miraculously induced prosopagnosia. Um, prosopagnosia is a known medical condition where people cannot recognize faces. So uh, prosopon is the Greek word for face and agnosia means not knowing. So prosopagnosia means you don't know faces. And so people who have prosopagnosia cannot recognize the face of their own spouse. And they have to rely on other clues to figure out, okay, this is my wife or this is my husband. And it's just something that happens in in our brains 
recognition system for other human beings isn't working properly. And so I find it in, in an, an intriguing possibility because Luke says they they were kept from recognizing him and then their eyes were opened. It sounds to me like maybe God, you know, is interfering with their face recognition module in their brain <laughs> and then he stops interfering with it and they can suddenly recognize him. Kind of like a perception filter. <laughs> like a, like a perception filter. Yeah. <laughs> so this is either way, whether it's another form or whether it's prosopagnosia, this is presented as a miracle. And when the miracle stops, they do recognize him. So it's not again, it's not consistent with evidence for an imposter. Then if there was an imposter, how do you mistake someone that you spent three years with, you know, when you're talking to him face to face and you're handling his wounds? What would the imposter's motives have been for impersonating Jesus? I mean, again, the resurrection was not expected. And this guy doesn't end up making any money off of this. Uh, he's right. with him for a few days, uh, you know, for period of 40 days. What's his motive to impersonate Jesus? And why didn't they recognize him? Then there's the fact it doesn't explain the empty tomb. Why didn't the authorities go to the tomb and produce the body of Jesus? Um, and finally, how could the imposter fly at the ascension? <laughs> so the imposter yep. theory, again, is not doing the work we would need it to do. Perhaps the uh, seeing uh, Jesus fly is explainable through the, hypo the hypothesis that the disciples were hallucinating. They were all hallucinated. It. Yeah. How's that plausible? With the hallucination hypothesis, um, it will explain the later appearances in the ascension. So it does it does have an advantage over the solutions we've looked at before because it could explain the ascension. But what's the evidence for it? Well, hallucinations are frequently experienced by people who are either subject to psychological disorders or uh, have some kind of chemical abuse like magic mushrooms or something. We have no evidence of that in the case of the apostles. We don't have evidence of psychological disorders, you know, like schizophrenia and things like that. We don't have evidence of uh, them having drug use that could produce hallucinations. Um, then there is the fact there appears to be no such thing as an up-close group hallucination. It, you may have individual people hallucinating, but they're not going to be hallucinating the same thing. Uh, hallucinations, as far as I can tell, are produced by processes very similar to dream to the dream module in our brain. And the dream module actually may be involved in hallucinations. But uh, if so, you can imagine you've got 12 people all having a, a, a waking dream together. Are they going to be dreaming the same conversation? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so. There, because we have not just individual appearances of Jesus to lone people who could be hallucinating on their own, because he's appearing to groups, this is a big problem for the hallucination hypothesis because you don't have up close group hallucinations. Um, also, when hallucinations do happen for psychological reasons, there tend to be uh, in a situation where there's a high expectation of something happening. Like where you really want something to happen and your brain kind of makes you, gives you an experience where it does. Um, but we don't have any expectation on the part of the disciples Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. Instead, as we mentioned, their first thought is somebody moved the body. 
And even when he starts appearing to them, the resurrection is not what they leap to because they're expecting that at the end of the world. Their first thought when they actually see him is it's a ghost. And so we don't have the kind of atmosphere of expectation that we would expect in the case of a hallucination. Also, he demonstrates his physicality to them to show that he's not just a, a, a vision or a ghost. Um, he has Thomas handle his wounds. He also eats fish in their presence. And then there's the fact the appearances stop suddenly 40 days later at the ascension. If they these guys were hallucinating about Jesus because they couldn't bear to be separated from him after his death, why doesn't he constantly appear to them? Why does he only appear for 40 days and then stop? That doesn't fit the normal pattern of hallucinations for people prone to them. They don't all suddenly get better all at once. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the fact it does not explain the empty tomb because Jesus's body would have still been in the tomb. And why didn't the authorities just go produce it? So big problems with the hallucination theory. As we go through this, I, I, I think of how the the evidence in the Gospels seems to anticipate these theories. It's just uh, maybe you, you, I might be jumping the gun a little bit, so I'll, I'll, we can come back to that, I guess. But it just seems like the the Gospels themselves anticipated many of these, these explanations. With, with some of these, now, I don't, I don't think that they were anticipating the hallucination hypothesis. I don't know that the ancients had the concept of hallucination in a way that as part of their intellectual furniture. Right. But I would say they do anticipate some of these objections like stolen body when we get to that. Um, but they also, uh, and we'll see evidence in Matthew, Matthew definitely anticipates the stolen body claim, but, um, they are evidence rich in describing from multiple angles what happened. And when you look at the evidence from these other angles, it's clear these hypotheses don't explain the data adequately. Yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, the demonstration of the physicality explains why it can't be hallucination, but also why it can't be a ghost or. These right. other things, you know, that sort of stuff. It's very interesting. Yeah. So now uh, we're we're up to the 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 claim there, or the 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 theory that the disciples stole the body. Yeah. So this one has significant explanatory power. If they stole the body and they're just a bunch of religious con men, it would explain the empty tomb. It would explain why they said he later appeared to them, and it would explain why they said he ascended. So it's got good explanatory power. But what's the evidence? Well. One of the things that Matthew notes is that this was the standard explanation in the Jewish community in his time. Matthew says that this was what Jews were claim non-Christian Jews were claiming about the resurrection to this day. So this was a preferred explanation early on. And Matthew knows that. And so in his gospel, he makes a point of saying, look, okay, there were guards over the tomb. So we couldn't have stolen the body. And he then talks about what happened with the guards. He says that the um that when Jesus's body when the tomb was found empty, the Jewish authorities went to the guards and said, "Okay, tell say you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. And if this comes to the attention of the governor, we'll protect you." Well, okay, so if they fell asleep, how did they know what the disciples did? That would be <laughs> conjecture on their part. Um, 
also, how likely is it that that would happen? The disciples previously had run away. And uh, so why would they suddenly get brave enough to, for no apparent reason, go get this body away from the guards who were armed and there with the intent of stopping them? Also, the account would indicate complicity on the part of Jewish authorities because they they bribed these, according to Matthew, they bribed these guards. Um, if there wasn't, if they hadn't bribed the guards, why didn't they just go report to Pilate, hey, these guards fell asleep. You need to deal with these guards. Right. So that suggests uh, you need to discipline the guards, perhaps by killing them, which was one of the things that could happen if you were a guard who fell asleep on duty then. so. Um, so based on the evidence Matthew presents us with, the, the stolen body hypothesis doesn't look good because of the guards. Now you could say, well, Matthew is a liar. He made up this stuff about the guards. Okay. Um, supposing he did, why then would he put it in his gospel and, and, knowing that the Jewish authorities could then come back and say, oh, nope, there were there's never a guard. Why would he invent something that would be instantly refuted by his opponents? Right. But suppose maybe he did that. Well, let's look at the rest of the careers of the apostles and see, does it look like these guys are a bunch of con men or not? Now, at this point, in some apologetic discussions, you'll have apologists, Protestant or Catholic, saying things like, all of the apostles except John died martyrs' deaths. We do not know that. Um, we have, that's, that's exaggeration of, of what the evidence says. All, all of them may have died a par- martyrs' deaths, including John. There are actually some early traditions that say John was martyred too. Um, but we don't know for sure. We know some of them were martyred. We know Paul was martyred, although he wasn't an eyewitness. Peter definitely was martyred. And we have evidence of others uh, under, you know, being martyred as well, but it's not as solid. I'll recommend a book in further resources that's the best book in terms of an objective look at the evidence of what we really know about the fates of the apostles. But we don't need to get hung up on were they martyred or not, because martyrdom is just the end of your career. <laughs> and there's also the evidence of what the rest of your career says. And based on what we know from the Book of Acts and other early Christian and non-Christian writings and uh, books like Second Corinthians, where Paul talks about his career and writings of the church fathers, we know that they that the apostles were subject to repeated arrest, imprisonment, beating, torture, mob violence, and both, in some cases, actual and attempted martyrdom. So they were undertaking a very dangerous profession by doing this, and they weren't getting rich on it. So that suggests, and they, they apparently, from the evidence we have, they weren't getting sex out of it either. Because uh, Paul and Barnabas were celibates, and the others apparently had one wife and only one wife. So, um, so what's the reward here for undertaking all of this danger? It doesn't seem to be the two common ones, money or sex, that you see religious hucksters, you know, getting out of what they do. So, also, they could have avoided all of these dangers 
just by shutting up or even denying Jesus. And we don't have evidence that they did that. And you would expect their opponents ideologically to trumpet it. Hey, guess what? This guy denied Jesus after all. We have no record of that happening. Even just one of them. uh, Even just even just one of them. Yeah. Yeah. We also have evidence from Acts that the apostles remained in Jerusalem, even when the rest of the Christian community evacuated because of persecution. And the repeated hardships that they undertook in their careers fundamentally attest to their honesty and says, they no, they were telling the truth as they saw it. They were not simply a bunch of crooks. So the stolen body hypothesis has significant problems with it as well. We, you mentioned earlier that perhaps uh, some people claim that perhaps there was a combination of these uh, uh, hypotheses that you could uh, put together that would explain explain some of the, the the failures of any individual one. Yeah, I haven't actually seen people claim this, but I'm including it because I can think of it and I want to include it for the sake of logical completeness. Right. Um, for example, you could say, well, maybe it's even though none of the hypotheses we've seen are plausible and explain all of the data, maybe we could put a couple together. So like maybe they went to the wrong tomb and that explains the empty tomb. And then they hallucinated the resurrection appearances and the ascension. So that way we get an explanation for these key things, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the ascension. Okay, well, you need to do something like that. You need to have something that can explain all three of these uh, to give you the explanatory power needed to cover the evidence. The problem is... um, If you try a combination hypothesis like this, it tends to inherit the implausibilities of the individual explanations, because you not only have to propose one thing that has problems, you're having to propose two things that have problems. So, for example, let's take wrong tomb plus hallucination. Well, if they went to the wrong tomb, why didn't the Jewish authorities go to the right one later and produce the body? And again, we've seen all these problems with the hallucination hypothesis. There's no such thing as an up-close group hallucination. And so all of the different problems with wrong tomb and all of the different problems with hallucination tend to be inherited by the wrong tomb plus hallucination hypothesis. Or if, if not all, absolutely all of them, then many of them do. And that means a combination hypothesis will tend to be even less likely than a single hypothesis. So those are all of the uh, natural explanations. Uh, So let's talk about some of these supernatural explanations. How plausible is the hypothesis that Jesus was resurrected spiritually as opposed to bodily? Well, um, it would explain the later uh, resurrection appearances and the ascension. But in terms of the evidence, it doesn't fare so well. The idea of a spiritual resurrection is anachronistic. This is not what Jews at the time understood resurrection to be. They understood it to be bodily. And uh, N.T. Wright has a book where he talks about this. I'll have a, uh, that in the further resources. So it, it doesn't fit the Jewish conceptual model of what the resurrection is. They did have a model for um, someone appearing in a vision after their death. They thought it was a ghost. And so uh, that's, in fact, what they first think Jesus is when he appears to them. And then he goes on to demonstrate his physicality to them by letting them touch him and by eating food in their present. He even 
according to Luke says, you see that a spirit hath not a, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he expressly says, nope, I'm not a ghost. So this isn't just a spiritual resurrection of some kind. And the spiritual resurrection hypothesis doesn't explain the empty tomb or why the authorities didn't go to it. Then that brings us all fully full circle right to the to the to the the one that we hold as as Christians. How plausible is the hypothesis that Jesus was resurrected bodily? Well, in terms of its explanatory power, it explains all the things we need. It explains why the tomb was empty. It explains the later resurrection appearances, and it explains the ascension. Um, in terms of evidence for it, well, based on the Sherlock Holmes principle, all of the other options either don't explain pieces of evidence that we need, or they are very implausible for reasons we have considered. So unless you have a prejudice against miracles happening to where you say they just can't happen, or the odds of a miracle must always be lower than a miracle occurring, than some natural phenomena, if you're, if you're open-minded to miracles and say, well, let's not assume anything about their antecedent probability, let's look at the data and see where it goes, in this case, the data points to a miracle and that Jesus really was raised bodily from the dead. And that's that's from the reason perspective. So yeah. now let's approach it from the faith perspective. If Jesus okay. if Jesus was resurrected, what implications does this have from the faith perspective? Well, one thing to note is he predicted it repeatedly. And so that indicates he had foreknowledge of a supernatural event. And that means he's got not just as he not just as he's the subject of a supernatural event, he's also tapped into a supernatural source of information. And that means we need to take what Jesus says about the supernatural, about the invisible world, seriously. And so he says, there is a God. There are angels, there are human souls, here's here's how you get saved, here's my role in God's plan, I'm the Messiah. He, you know, until the resurrection, now assuming we weren't eyewitnesses of other miracles, but until the resurrection, you could say, well, he's just making these claims. But if he then r rises from the dead, just as he predicted, that validates the claims. This guy is authentically tapped into information about the supernatural and we therefore need to take his claims about the faith seriously. So the resurrection is a significant, very powerful piece of evidence for the truth of the Christian faith. The person who performs the event gets to interpret it, and Jesus apparently was legitimately raised and knew about it, and that gives us very strong evidence that his claims are true. And, and that's your bottom line uh, and our bottom line. <laughs> that's my bottom line. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Uh, that's a I'm going to take a, a wild leap and guess that most of our listeners are are like you and me, uh, faithful uh, Christians, Catholics. I'm not going to assume that everyone is. And so that's why. It's valuable, but it's I also hope, I useful. I hope all our listeners aren't. I, I wonder. I, I I want other people to be thinking about these ideas too. Exactly. Well, and then I was going to say that uh, this is useful for those of us who who do already believe to help us to help other people as well. And maybe if you if you feel comfortable to share this podcast with them and help them, you know, if they especially if they have a logical mind to walk them through the these sorts of things. So that's that's excellent. Uh, very very nice walk through and, and a great way to start the Easter season 
thinking about this. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners who want to go a little bit deeper in these subjects? So I have a number of books to recommend. The first one is a book that I wrote called A Daily Defense. And I go over in kind of brief form, I cover like 365 different, actually 366 different topics in this book. But I have a section in A Daily Defense where I go over the arguments that we covered here, um, at least in brief form, I go over them. And because I mentioned that not everybody has picked up on the significance of the ascension in this argument, um, I especially recommend A Daily Defense because I do talk about it there. And you won't find that in other people's work on the subject. So there's my book, A Daily Defense. Also, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, where he talks about the nature of what Jews expected the resurrection to be. Carl Olson's book, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? Michael Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus. And finally, Sean McDowell's book, The Fate of the Apostles, which is the best. It's kind of expensive, but it's the best book looking objectively at the evidence we have regarding what happened to the apostles later. Excellent. We'll have all of those in our show notes. They'll also be on uh, the Mysterious World store, uh, mysteriousworldstore.com, where if when you if you purchase it through those links, you help actually help support our show. So uh, get a great book, get some good knowledge, and help us continue the show. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it. All right, let's go on to our mysterious feedback, the feedback we get from our listeners on our previous shows. This time, it's feedback on our time travel episode. And Kevin Schmidt sent us a comment on YouTube. He says, I love the show, but the one thing I wish you would go into in shows would be, if applicable, what the catechism or the Pope says about the topic and whether it's okay to believe in such things. For example, is it okay, according to Catholic Church teaching, to believe in aliens or time travel, etc.? What do you say, Jimmy? Well, I uh, we do do that. Um, it It's indicated in one way or another, because we always look at things from the faith perspective and the reason perspective, the place to look for that information is whenever you hear Dom say something like, let's look at this from the faith perspective, that's where you'll find that information. I don't always phrase it in terms of the it, it's it's permissible to believe in this. Uh, very frequently, I will say something like that. But unless I say it's forbidden, liberty is presumed. And so unless I say there's a church teaching against this, you can presume it's not against church teaching. And it's then a question of what do you think the evidence says? What do you think the reason perspective says? Emma on Facebook says, uh, I love Jimmy's enthusiasm and excellent narrative skills, but also lots of respect for Dom and the teamwork in these episodes. Jimmy is the teacher who knows absolutely everything. I agree. But Dom is me. <laughs> he asks the questions the audience wants to ask when we get confused by all Jimmy's knowledge. Excellent work, both of you. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Emma. And I just want to I just want to echo and affirm what you said. Dom's Dom is very important to the show. He makes big contributions. It would not be the show it is without him. And I highly value his uh, his his work. Initially, I didn't even want to call it Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, but Dom kind of insisted. And, <laughs> I did. And and uh, and and I just I just highly value everything Dom does on the show. He's an outstanding host, and I want to give him just a world of credit for everything he does. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I've, I've got to be honest. The, you know, it's it's a lot of fun to to kind of jump in and try to keep up and to experience this as uh, as as a participant with you in these. Uh, and I'm always uh, encouraged and fascinated by uh, what you bring to the table. And uh, I'm glad that the audience enjoys this. Uh, to be honest, it's one of the ways I do this. Is sometimes I know 
a little bit more than I let on as I asked the question, but I'm trying oh, yeah. to ask the question that I think is applicable in this moment for a large part of the audience. And so right. uh, that's that's a big part of it, too. So uh, thank you, Emma, for giving this opportunity to congratulate each other. Uh, RCS Curtis asks on Facebook, uh, if tomorrow my wife and I's 40 year old minds both woke up back in 1997 when we started dating as teenagers, which we were in 1997, is our sacrament still valid? I assume it is, but the time travel discussion makes me curious. This is a very interesting question. It's going to, the answer is going to depend on personal identity. Um, I would say if you and your wife have been trans, genuinely transported back in the past, then you're still both living in the same time frame with each other at a point in your own personal timeline after you've agreed to be married. And therefore, you, I would presume that your marriage and the its sacramental character is still valid. However, I would have a question of if you wake up in a in a teenager body, have you really traveled in time or has your teenage body somehow acquired a copy of your adult memories? So if only if you've only had some kind of memory transfer then you may think you have in the past agreed to be married to each other. But the truth is, no, you haven't in your timeline. Um, you just have memories that say you do. And so you're not really married to each other. Um, if, on the other hand, you you want to say, well, no, we really did. It wasn't just our memories got transferred into our 17-year-old selves but really our identities are here now, then I want to know, well, why aren't your adult bodies here? Because it looks like we've got a 17-year-old body that just has a memory transfer. Um, and so how do you have an identity transfer without a body coming with it? And that would be something that would be harder to explain. But one way or another, it's going to depend on, was this an actual relocation of you with your full identity to the past or was this just a memory transfer to the past i i detect a very interesting science fiction story premise <laughs> in mm -hmm. that uh, someone more talented in writing fiction than i could probably pick that up and uh, that would be very interesting uh michael sends an email he says in the near-death experience episode episode number 27 one of the proofs was a gentleman who said, you thought such and such and you ate my lunch. Unless the doctor was eating the man's lunch while he was in cardiac arrest, which is doubtful, then at least that part of the knowledge was obtained when the patient wasn't dead and so was not the result of an NDE. Uh, let's address that part of his question first. Yeah, so I agree. It's uh, that part of what the gentleman of what the patient said is not necessarily the result of an NDE, although it could be if he was, because one of the things NDE people report is an experience of being outside of their body and seeing it from another perspective. Whether that's literally what's happening is a different question that we'll talk about in future episodes. But if he was like hovering around his body, even though he wasn't cardiac arresting at the moment, he might have picked it up that way, or he might have picked it up while he was fully in his body and just, you know, could deduce by the sounds, the guy is eating my lunch. But the the if I'm not mistaken, he said he saw 
the doctor eating his lunch, even though he his eyes would have been closed. So that could suggest the kind of outside perspective on the room that's associated with NDEs. Other things he that he reported, like hearing the doctor think, why did you do this to me, did occur while he was under cardiac arrest and wouldn't have been something he could have overheard with physical senses. And so that that would suggest there's something more to this experience than could have been just a normal, natural, prosaic experience. Although I acknowledge that the you ate my lunch part has more questions about it. And then the second part of his email, he says, regarding the time travel episode, number 29, I recently came across this article that may be pertinent. According to the article, researchers from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology teamed up with colleagues from the U.S. and Switzerland and returned the state of a quantum computer a fraction of a second into the past. Uh, by the way, I have to mention, I, I, I think I included something about that in StarQuest headlines recently. So oh, the, the, okay. That, uh, and you could go to that to see more. Uh, and he, so he finishes, this kind of reminds me of the novel Thrice Upon a Time by James B. Hogan. Well, I'll talk about that a little more in Mysterious Headlines. So why don't we turn to Mysterious Headlines? <laughs> Excellent. So uh, what are our Mysterious Headlines this week, Jimmy? Well, the first one is just a link to my blog. Uh, since I realized that the, our Resurrection of Jesus show is also the one where we would naturally do the feedback on the time travel show, I couldn't resist uh, including a caption from or a, an image from my all-time favorite comic series, The Legion of Superheroes. The, the Legion of Superheroes is a 31st century team of superheroes. So you have superheroes and science fiction. And there was an issue a few years ago where some researchers in the future have a time viewer that they can view any moment in history from creation forward. And they're debating what to look at through it. And one of them says, why don't you look at the great mystery of A.D. 33 and end the endless debate? <laughs> <laughs> and and so they're they're even though they don't name the resurrection, that's what they're talking about. Let's let, let's use our 31st century technology to solve the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, since we're coming up on Easter, I put that up on my blog and we'll have a link to that. So you can you can take a look at it. Excellent. Also, I have a link to um, the story that Michael sent. Uh, he sent a link to another site, but it was a reprint of an article at MIPT.ru. That's the uh, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. So I linked to the original source of it for people. It, it, the headline, from what I can tell, is a little misleading. They and and other accounts of this seem to have just reprinted the story without without providing further analysis. Right. They didn't, you'll hear some account saying they, they moved an electron back in time. They really didn't do that. They did a thought experiment that might involve an electron moving to a prior configuration, um, but not, but still moving forward in time. And so I have a question in my mind. It doesn't look like what they actually did do was they ran some experiments in a some hypothetical experiments in a computer and the to give you an analogy they that they used they compared it to like you have a bunch of billiard balls on a table in you know the racked up triangle formation and then you break them and so they scatter all over the table and then if you were to kick the table just right you might be able to get them to go back to the triangle formation Right. Well, that's not making them go back in time. 
That's just making them return to a previous configuration. And what they did in a quantum computer was essentially the equivalent of kicking the table to make the state of a computer program revert to a previous state. But the program is still moving forward in time. They're just causing it, the data in it to assume a previous configuration. So I think there's some misreporting uh, of, of what they actually did. And there may be, since this is originally in Russian, there may be some translation issues uh, that are involved here as well. But I don't think they, I would love for them to, rever to have reversed time, but I don't think they actually did. Right. The one, the one I saw said uh, that quantum information always progresses from a simple state to a more complex state. And they were able to reverse that yeah. from chaos to order, which yeah, they in, says it, it. But you, you do that by kicking the table. It's not. It's not right. <laughs> right. Right. So it, it doesn't mean we're going to have time traveling DeLoreans anytime soon, but maybe it has big implications for understanding of physics, per se. Maybe yeah. that's that. That is probably more like. OK, so. Time so, travel, maybe. <laughs> so supposing you did time travel, let's suppose you time traveled back, oh, I don't know, 300,000 years to when primitive humans were living on savannas in Africa. Well, good news. It wouldn't feel that different from what you're likely experiencing right now. Uh, one of the things that has been noted, and I've been aware of this for some time, is uh, scientists have observed that our evolutionary heritage shows in the way we shape our environments as because unlike other species, God's given us the intellect to affect our environment in big ways. And so what do humans do when they uh, when they ha when they can do what they want with their environment? Well, they build savannas. They <laughs> build you look at somebody's lawn. What do they have? They've got grass. They've got open spaces of grass with a few trees, maybe some a body of water. You look at a park. Well, it's got open spaces of grass with a few trees and a body of water. And that's exactly where our ancestors evolved. So that's what they found comfortable. Uh, they The uh, African savannas, where you had grasslands with some trees and bodies of water, that's exactly where our ancestors evolved. So that's what we like. So without even thinking about it, that's how we design our lawns and our parks and things like that. We don't you know, build tundras or deserts or things like that nearly as much as we build savanna-like parks. Well, it turns out, now I've been aware of all that for a while, but it turns out a new study uh, indicates that Americans, because that's where the study was conducted, Americans make the temperature and humidity inside their homes resemble African savannas too. They gave a bunch of people devices for a year to monitor the temperature and humidity inside their house. They then mailed them back. All the data got downloaded. And it turns out, let's say, where on earth has this climate? Guess what African savannas do? So there's another illustration of how the process that God used to shape our evolutionary history affects our preferences even today in ways that we don't even realize. But we're still doing that thing of, hey, let's make us a great savanna here, even inside <laughs> the house. So basically what you're saying is if you want to go someplace where it just feels perfect all the time, go to live on an African savanna. Yeah, but get your <laughs> malaria shot first. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and it is interesting that no matter where you go in the United States, basically everyone pretty much prefers, you know, whether it's in the hot south or the cold north, we all kind of prefer about the same temperature uh, as the comfortable environment to live in, whether we do it through heating or cooling. So it's very interesting. Yeah.
So uh, that will bring us to the end of this discussion. Uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible. And today we want to thank Caroline K, Wendy T, Bradley J, Cynthia A, and Melanie Q. For their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at SQPN. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think about uh, this ex exploration of the explanations for the resurrection of Jesus? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or uh, the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, which is going great. It was lots of activity there. We really enjoy seeing everyone posting comments and, and things there. Uh, you could leave some feedback there or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of or use the hashtag on Twitter of hashtag mysterious feedback. We'll get we'll get our feedback any, any of those ways. Be sure, like I mentioned before, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. And you can find also find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>